You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. That said, I can't think of kind of a better way of sort of ending the season than with celebrating Cal Spelitek and his work. Cal's no stranger to City Lights. Uh, he's an artist that we've respected and who's been in our orbit for a number of years, and uh, we're very, very excited about these devices. And I'm hoping that by the end of the evening, you'll each get a chance to play with them because that's the idea they're supposed to be played with. So as many of you probably know, Cal builds interactive machines and robots. His work explores the intersection of human and machine relationships, oftentimes repurposing technology and allowing us to kind of revisit our relationship to technique and how it relates to culture. Cal's attention to detail and insightful and asymmetrical views on technology make his work so prescient, dynamic, and very compelling. Uh, recent exhibitions of his work has been held in Namibia, in Ljubljana, in Berlin, in Vienna, in New York, here in San Francisco, of course, and many, many other places. His projects have been featured in the New York Times, on PBS, and in other critical journals and media. His work is represented by the Catherine Clark Gallery tonight. Yes. Worthy of much applause. Um, so we are celebrating an exhibit, but also a catalog. It is called Significance, Machines, and Purposeful Robots. This is an exhibit which ends this month at St. Mary's College Museum of Art. Uh, it's been running for a few months now. It includes life-size playing robots, photos, sound machines, drawings, videos, and interactive sculptures, which explore the question, is there a spiritual dimension to technology? So as I mentioned before, Cal really thinks a lot about the repurposing, repurposing of tech. Uh, his audiences operate robots that possess both meditative and sometimes violent aspects. Uh, his work pushes his audience towards a creative response to their own lives. So, celebra so uh, we're celebrating tonight the release of this wonderful catalog, which I'm also hoping you get a chance to look at. And uh, it's enshrined inside of these wonderful artifacts that you see. And these are produced in a limited edition. And inside the suitcase are a variety of different vectors, all somehow engaging your senses. Uh, the catalog was organized by St. Mary's College Museum of Art curator April... Now, am I going to get this right? Bojorquez? Good. Uh, and it's, there's a foreword in the catalog by Lauren McDonald and an interview with Catherine Clark, who I'm very, very happy to say and very honored to have here with us tonight. And since the founding of Gallery in 1991, she has curated internationally acclaimed gallery exhibits in contemporary art and in all disciplines. Uh, and she represents such artists as Sandow Burke, Lenka Clayton, Chris Doyle, Al Farrow, many, many others. So in 2016, uh, Catherine Clark founded the Box Blur, which is an initiative to bring visual and performing art into dialogue within a non-proscenium-based space at the gallery. Also joining us tonight is Alistair Shank, who's our special guest. He is a musician on a spiritual journey, I guess you could say. Uh, former member of Tragic Mulatto and a musician par excellence. It is such a great honor to have you all here with us tonight. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hi, everybody. Hi. I just want to do a shout out also for Lauren, who's here from St. Mary's. Yeah. And I almost feel like you should be up here with us because. Yeah, come on. Uh, come on up. I could use some moral support up here. But no pressure. Um, and also there's gallery staff here too, so thanks for coming. And everybody else who's here, friends, lots of familiar faces. And Peter, thank you for hosting this tonight. I think you mostly want to hear from these two. And um, I'm just enjoying that this is a little bit of a reprise of a conversation that happened in the gallery five years ago now, maybe? Yeah, sort of looking at if there was a space for technology and end-of-life issues, which is maybe a little morbid, though we're coming to the end of the year, so thinking <laughs> about time and um, spirituality and um, time passing, maybe. Um, tell us a little bit about the way that spirituality is playing a role in your current work that might have been different from five years ago. We have a mic. Yay. I'm glad everyone's here and weathered the weather. Um, what's been happening? This guy changed my life, and he doesn't know it, and he doesn't remember, but uh, in 1996, I had been an artist for 16, 17 years, and I sort of had a nervous breakdown. I was an alcoholic. It was fun. I was partying and uh, whatever, doing what I was doing, and uh, I was having a really cool part of my life and career, but uh, I, was, I was vacant inside and empty and trying to self-medicate. And I'd watched Alistair um, go through this journey, for lack of a better word. And he was a raging, brilliant punk rocker. And I even booked him once in Austin, Texas when I lived there. I used to book punk bands. and. At one point, I ran into Alistair, and he was all like, uh, I just at peace. Whereas there was this other energy before that coming from you. He must have just woken up. Yeah, he just <laughs> hadn't had his coffee yet. But something was different inside him, and I could tell something had shifted. And I was in a really stuck place in my life, and I wasn't happy, and I didn't want to blame it. I want I didn't want to blame anyone or my family or, oh, this happened to me or that. I wanted to figure it out myself. And I'd already given up on Christianity the way I was raised, and that wasn't working for me. So I asked Alistair, what are you studying again? I think I, I called you. It's back when you'd call people, and they'd answer the phone. And I was like, what are you, what are you studying again? No phone again? appointments, just phone calls. You just would call people, and they'd answer and talk to you for a while. And I just said, what are you studying again? And how do I, where could I learn about this? And he was telling me about Eastern philosophy and just some of the things that it had done for him. And uh, God, you just, you just, it was what I, you were at a place I wanted to be at. And I wasn't at all. And, and so you sent me to Fields Bookstore on Polk Street. <clears throat> and I went there and I had money, I wasn't completely broke, and I brought a hundred bucks, and I brought a hundred dollars in books, and every morning I read till I had to go to work. And I, would, I was going to bed early and, and, and so I could read for like three hours before work. 
and it slowly, you know, I peeled back the layers and I started to uh, address some of the shit I was working through. And, uh, um, yeah, that was a while ago. So anyway, I made all this art in the meantime, and a lot of it was super violent and fun and aggro and uh, collaborated with a lot of people. Probably the most notorious or respected was this collective called Survival Research Laboratories, who I still help with stuff. And uh, I didn't want to do that kind of work anymore, though. I didn't want to be a nihilist, cynical. Uh, I wanted answers, and I wanted to make art that helped and went beyond uh, critique. And, and I felt like ah, that was what I did when I was uh, at that part of my life. And now I want to uh, make more positive work that is hopefully helpful to people. And uh, um, that led to, uh, I guess in the 2000s, I started thinking about um, prayer wheels and prayer flags. And I thought, why do those work? And, and what uh, a prayer wheel, if you've ever actually seen them in India, they have machines that pray for you. And I thought, well, why, can't, why aren't my machines praying then? So I did research, and I, my aunt is a nun, a Catholic nun, and I started to talk to her about it. And uh, she's super rad. She's like 89 and a hardcore feminist, and really she just wants to, like, crush the Catholic Church and bring them up to the current reality that we're all living in. And uh, I remember one time, she follows my work as well, and one time I asked her at a family gathering, uh, could, do you think technology can do spiritual work? Can technology do spiritual work? So that was sort of the first question I had in my head, and she didn't blink. When I asked the question, she's like, well, of course it can. I was like, yes. And I was like, cool, because I'm going to do this show, and I don't know where I'm going to show it, but I'm going to build all this work, and I so can't offend you with this work, because I completely respect you and the role you've had in my life, this, this wonderful aunt. And um, here we are. What did I skip? Everything? What do you think, Alistair? The first thing I think is that your, your story about um, how I impacted you reminds me of all the people that have impacted me. And this is one of the basic tenets of Buddhism is this idea of interdependence. And that we're all in this you know interdependent web where we're affecting one another. Um, I don't take credit for anything because it's all come to me from other people. But with this idea of technology, you know, one of the things that I was reflecting on last night is I was thinking, well, what is technology and spirituality? And, and the vision, the idea of a church came to me, like, you know, a big stone church. And, you know, design and architecture is technology. And, uh, you know, Christians have used it for millennia to uh, inspire a spiritual state. If you walk into a church like Notre Dame in Paris or any any church that, that is well built like that and you see the the stained glass windows and I mean you can just feel something in there. And that was really the purpose of those buildings was to make people feel awe and wonder. Um, and to me that's one of the original 
well, whether it's the original or not, maybe the drum is the original spiritual instrument, I don't know. But that was something that was used, uh, you know, just to promote spirituality. I'm curious about um, St. Mary's decision to show Cal's work. And even though I was part of that process with Cal, um, I'm really interested in how a Catholic community views his work. And given his, I don't know if it's atheism, but let's say I'm I'm an anarchist atheist. (laughs) (laughs) Unabashed. And yet his commitment to spirituality, where... Where does a Catholic church or a museum within a Catholic setting, um, uh, how does it think about a role for art and artists who work in these ways? Easy question. Um, (laughs) No, I think the way that we approach at the Museum of Art, um, artists and the work that we show is we invite critical inquiry. And Cal is the perfect artist to have for that because his work not only invites critical thought, but direct engagement and interaction. And we want to bring a questioning of spirituality and faith to the community. Um, Spirituality is inherently one that questions. Maybe religion has the dogma, but spirituality questions, invites, explores, and that's what art does as well. So it was actually a perfect fit. And the response to your show has been so positive. We've had entire classes from the School of Science come over and spend an entire class period in the museum playing with the robots, talking about how science and engineering worked with art to bring these things into creation. Um, We have had more children than usual come into the museum to touch and to play. Um, And, you know, I think what's wonderful about your work, Cal, is that it invites every type of interaction. It could invite someone who wants to think about where is the spiritual in this or what am I being prompted to question? I'm thinking of your piece, Praying Hands. Um, You know, is there a robotic element to prayer and how we use it Um, to something as simple and almost peaceful as a breathing pillow? Mm. And that's the one that the children have been responding to the most. They love the idea of pressing the pillow and it inflates and it's Cal's breath that does that. Um, And then the piece you did specifically based on the work in our permanent collection, the painting by William Keith, Strawberry Creek, and this beautiful harp that is technological and abstract and sculptural and there's media uh, because we have the recording of the um, Strawberry Creek itself and how the flow of the natural river was recorded to capture and then play the harp. And then you have that all juxtaposed to the painting by William Keith. And so there's this whole coming together. And it was the, the thought that you gave not only to your own work and how that engages with spirituality and questions Christianity, but that you took that effort to look into our permanent collection, to explore what we have and what makes our museum unique, and then build upon that. So, I mean, besides being a wonderful experience and working with you is always a joy to those couple days where you lived in the museum installing the robots, um, it's invited so much questioning and thought. The brothers have come 
to, because the brothers, a number of them reside on campus, they come and they look at the artwork and engage with it and question it and explore it. Um, and it's all part of, of learning and exploration. And so to me, it was a logical and seamless um, accompaniment to what education is all about and the role of a museum and a museum at an academic institution is there to engage and support critical thought. Was that a long enough answer? It was perfect. So why spirituality? Ah, it's such a weird word. It's a squishy word. It's a squishy, squishy word. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's just looking inside yourself and then uh, how do you find answers to the existential angst or the struggle of life? And, uh, um, and maybe that is spirituality. And, and how do I be a better citizen and person and responsible? Uh, come on, I know I'm a white guy. I get a pass. I knew that when I was 15 when I started getting arrested. And the Latino guys and black guys would stay in the cell and they'd be like, oh, kid, get out of here. What do you think you're doing out there at night? And, and then the guys I was with were people of color didn't get out. And so I saw, you know, in 1976 that I, I was getting a pass, which to me meant I had a bigger responsibility to do something of importance with my life. I have a saying, don't live a bullshit life. And you know if you're living a bullshit life. You will wake up when you're 40 or 50 years old and go, shit, what am I, what, what am I doing? And uh, it's, it's, it's getting harder to not live a bullshit life because of the bills and this, uh, this system we're born into. I'm not answering the question. Why do you think people are so <laughs> cynical about the word? Mm. Well, uh, God, I hate cynicism. And I so struggle to not be cynical. And I think maybe that's part of this spiritual thing is to uh, um, not blame others or even this broken system, what I think of as a broken system we live in, and provide answers and provide something positive. Hence, I built robots that pray for you. And, I, and, and the university gave me a budget to work with an electrical engineer who's a brilliant, genius guy who never comes to any of my shows, but an uh, awesome guy, good old buddy, um, Theremin Barney. Some of you might know Barney. And he, uh, we built sensors that harvest uh, uh, data from you. We don't save it, but it reads a bio output from you, and then it make, uh, causes the robots to perform praying gestures, gestures um, for, with, and about you. And... Uh, and each sensor is triggered differently by a different audience because everyone has a different kind of bio output. And so the goal was that um, these robots respond uniquely each time. And uh, I think there's a dozen of them or so in the exhibit. And that's ah, fun and hard and confusing. And you don't want to offend anyone, but then you want to you know, do your work and not pull punches and speak truth to what I'm seeing in life and have fun. You know, uh, there's nothing worse than a boring art show. Yeah. <laughs> so this may get a little theological, but um, 
and maybe there are two parts to this question. One is that my understanding of Catholicism is that the way to speak to God is often assisted by a priest or somebody who helps. So, uh, I'm not Catholic, for the record. So for any Catholics or lapsed Catholics out there, I'm not Catholic either. I was an altar boy. So Cal may, Cal may have the answer here, but... Um, but, uh, but my understanding is that one of the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism, for example, is that if you're Protestant, theoretically, you have this direct relationship to God. So you can pray in your home, say, and you can talk directly to God. And um, if you're Catholic, there's uh, an assist, like you pray to Mary and Mary talks to God, or you have... You, pray in the context of a church, say, and there's priests who help get your prayers there. So in a sense, it makes sense to me that as a lapsed Catholic, say, um, that the robot might perform that role of, I think it's called an intercessor, right? Um, but I'm curious also, Alistair, because I don't know enough about Buddhism, is, is, do Buddhists have a direct relationship with God? Okay, so um, <laughs> uh, Buddhism is not a theistic religion, so that's a, a, an important distinction to make, is that um, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, these, the Abrahamic religions, these are theistic religions that posit some kind of supreme being. Hinduism, sort of, um, where they have you know, different gods. Um, Buddhism does not, but there are expressions of Buddhism that are much more devotional. I think what's important is something that Lauren touched on was this distinction. Like I said, spirituality is a squishy word, so I think it's important to distinguish between spirituality and religion. Those are two different things. So, And when I say religion, I think of established, hierarchical, institutionalized religions that are really about um, creating structures of control. And um, one of the distinctions I like to make between spirituality and religion is that religion uh, is in the business of providing answers. And spirituality or the spiritual impulse is essentially about asking questions, which is, as Lauren also mentioned, is the same as art. So, I'm sorry, what? Goethe, Faust, Faustus. Oh, yes. That's what we are, the artists. We are Faustuses. All right. Um, so, um, so, so yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make, and it's true that Catholicism is a mediated religion, as you have to have the priests, and, and the Pope is considered to be the closest person to God, which to me is a very odd concept. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, Buddhism is not, there is not one Buddhism. Uh, this is something else that's easily misunderstood. There are so many different um, flavors and permutations of Buddhism. And, um, but for the most part, and certainly now in the West and here in the U.S. with the developing American, what's called American Buddhism, um, is really tends to be very unmediated and focused on practice meaning that people uh, tend to focus uh, as much on their sitting practice, their meditation, as they do on the actual teachings. So what resonance does Cal's work have for you as a Buddhist, or does it? 
Well, when I saw the spinning Buddhas, I thought that was hilarious because there is a, <clears throat> a practice in, uh, in the East of circumambulation. Uh, if you are familiar with the stupas, these stone structures that they build uh, in, in places like Tibet and, uh, and India, and one of the practices is walking round and round, and once after a certain number, do you know what the number is? 10,000? Uh, anyway, this, a three, no, I, I think it's a lot more than that. Uh, it, it, but but this is in essence a spiritual practice. So this is this is pretty pretty funny um, to me. Um, but you know there might be Buddhists who would take offense and storm the gates. Peter, do you want to join us? Well, you know it was a real pleasure kind of watching this whole project from the beginning kind of morph into what it is and 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 um after everything you've all said I, I i come back to some of what we talked about initially involving altered states because we recently had a surrealism festival and strangely enough there there were quite a few events that 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 talked about artists that had kind of used trance mediumship altered states to kind of reach these places where they could kind of develop art. And uh, when looking at these, the final product here, which is really exciting, I'm somehow, I mean, there's so many parts of it that really kind of, I mean, you know, the more you listen to this repetitive kind of motion and sound and scraping, I mean, it kind of puts you into this sort of hypnotic state. And uh, I mean, I would love to know, you know, kind of where does altered state stand in your work? I mean, how does that serve you? I did LSD in 1975 <laughs> or six. I was a very way too young to do it, but uh, did a lot of psychedelics, and it completely changed everything. I mean, you just stare at your hand for six hours, and you're like, "Wow," <laughs> you know. And then you're like, "We are connected," and it's like the veins of a leaf. And I'm, you know, and and the next day you walk around, and your whole world's different. And you're like, wow, no politi there shouldn't be politicians unless they tripped, because you don't get it. You don't understand anything until you've gone to an altered state. And I still believe that 40 years later. I have no doubt. And uh, um, uh, I quit cigarettes, tripping. Get off drugs. You want to get off drugs? Have a psychedelic experience. Um, you know, you all can operate these after um, the talk. And each has a spins and has, has a small, a short soundtrack with each one. And it's definitely fun to have these out in the public and a group of them out in the public. There's one in the museum mm -hmm. that we've exhibited for several months. And we're going to show one at Katie's yeah, gallery. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention uh, the Strawberry Creek piece that Lauren was speaking of. I mean, first of all, you should all see it out at St. Mary's. The show in general is spectacular. Um, it's an overview of all of the praying robots as well as some new work. Um, and um, so you can visit old friends there and also yeah, see some pieces you've never seen before. It closes December... Uh, this week. December yesterday. Is it this... Well, I think technically it closes... Is it Saturday? Yeah, yesterday or the day before. 
but we haven't started deinstall yet. Yeah, I don't deinstall till the middle of next. There'll be a collection plate at the end of this time. Yeah, we'll pass the plate. No, so you can poke the museum if you want to go out there and yeah. see the exhibit. But, but back to just the, that piece, because it, I think it's a really special piece for a variety of reasons that Lauren touched on. But you will get a chance to see it in San Francisco um, January 11th, I believe it is. We open an exhibition of Chester Arnold's paintings, um, which are dealing with the environment. Um, and we thought it would be appropriate in our media room to bring um, both the painting um, that's from the collection, which um, they're being generously willing to loan to us. Um, and um, uh, it's a 19th century painting. And um, Cal's response to this work, um, which is music and video based. Um, and as Lauren said, the water uh, activates the harp that, uh, Cal designed that um, then plays the music, the music of the water. Um, so maybe it's not assisted prayer, but it's an assisted song through this instrument that nature plays. Um, and it's really beautiful, transportive, and I think a, a worth coming to the gallery to see. So I killed it with that piece. <laughs> so uh, um, they gave this, the museum gave me a budget to um, make some new work. And I looked through this massive archive of paintings of this turn of the century painter that ran around with John Muir. And they ran all over North, uh, Northern California. And John Muir was doing it to save uh, really the Redwoods and Yosemite. And he took Teddy Roosevelt out once camping. And uh, and, and it's how the national parks were born, is that where right? The na how the national parks were born. William Keith was rolling around with them at the same time, and they're camping buddies, and Keith is painting and drawing it, and Muir is a, a naturalist, they called it back then, and his goal was to save the redwoods and save Northern California because he saw it getting logged and picked apart. And this is the 1800s. So they have this massive collection of these paintings and drawings, and I, and, I, and I saw that in the museum, one of the rooms was always dedicated to him. And I was like, I gotta get in that room. How can I have a piece? Or how do I react to that collection? If this is sort of a, a linchpin of the museum's collection. So I dug through it, and I saw this one that said, Strawberry Creek, Berkeley, California, 1880-something. And I was like, Strawberry Creek, that's, why do I know that? And then I, rem it's in Berkeley, there's a swimming pool, there's a park, and it's the first creek in America that was daylighted. So all Do you guys know what daylighted means? So every big city covered up their rivers right. and creeks. New York City, San Francisco, my crappy hometown I grew up in, and Davenport, Iowa did it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and so, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> So uh, um, uh, Berkeley was the first city in America to unearth one of those buried creeks, and that's called now daylighting. And it's a global movement to bring nature back to these concrete cities and, and honor nature. So I went and found the little half block where the creek is daylit, and I videotaped it and walked around and thought about it, and I was like, I'm going to build a harp to sing to this creek. I also have a, a noise band sound 
element to all of my pieces or a lot of my work. And I work with Richard Marriott and Clubfoot Orchestra now, uh, which is going to perform at Katie's yeah, Feb Gallery. February 15th. Is this, uh, Spend your Valentine's Day weekend with us and Clubfoot Orchestra. Experimental Orchestra we're in. Anyway, um, bum, 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 bum. Uh, but then I wanted the creek to trigger this harp, uh, so the harp sings back to the creek. It's sort of a feedback loop, which is very much how a lot of my sensors operate. If you touch or hold some of the sensors that trigger the praying robots and you get excited, the robot gets excited. And if you calm down, uh, the robot calms down. So it is sort of a, a way to meditate and calm yourself when you get excited or agitated. Um, Creek did what it wanted to do. My adorable partner, Mary Mazinski, slogged around in that damn creek with me, freezing as I set the thing up and really tested it several times, sort of mortified that city park commissioner would come and arrest me or the locals who, of course, love this creek and park would um, intervene, but they didn't really. And um, I ended up dangling a pine cone in the babbling creek and as the water moved the pine cone, it would turn on and off this mechanical harp I built. <clears throat> and so in the room, the William Keith part of the museum, the William Keith room, we hung the, the painting that looks like a forest in Berkeley in the 1880s of Strawberry Creek, this painting. And then next to it's a video on a big, flat, beautiful flat screen of my harp playing in this creek. And then the harp, mechanical harp, and people can operate it by moving the actual pine cone mechanism sensor I had dangling in the creek. <laughs> True story. So uh, props to the museum for letting me do that and, and sort of believing in me. Like, I got to get, where's this painting? And they had to find the painting. It was, it was in the brother's home. And... <laughs> There was a lot so, of steps to this. Uh, we do have uh, off-site storage that's climate controlled, but we have actually our permanent collection is so large that we have to have a number of pieces in significant offices on campus as well, including the brothers' quarters. So we're digging around trying to find Strawberry Creek. So it's not at Ream and off-site storage. We have an inventory at somewhere, and then it's in the brothers' quarters. Well, I really don't enjoy going into the brothers' quarters, so I sent two of our male staff members into the quarters, and they came out with the painting, so we did retrieve it. But there was some finagling and talking to the brothers. Don't worry. It'll come back. Maybe I'm thinking over my dead body. It's ah. going to come back. Um, but one of the most entertaining aspects of having this piece in the museum, and, well, all the pieces, are the fun emails that have been exchanged over Cal. Uh, the pine cone fell off the end of the arm and a few of the little, I don't know, are they called nuts or the, the little things that fall out of pine cones? Seeds, Seeds thank you. So, it, and I'm reading these and I'm going, I'm the director, I can't, I should save all these emails because, okay, we have lost three seeds from the pine cone, but we think it will be okay. We were able to rehang the cone from, and Cal's like, great guys, thanks. He's really calm about it. We're all freaking out thinking, oh my God, where are we going to get another pine cone like this? You know, there isn't one, there's only one in nature. Um, 
But anyway, it's been, but we really love that Cal's been calm through. He's actually a pine cone um, I got on my buddy's property that okay. I just threw in the back of my truck and had been in the back of my truck bouncing around for a year or okay, two. Okay, so it lost <laughs> enough seeds already. Good to know. Thank You could have told me that earlier before. Like, Not a special pine cone. <laughs> it's minted in gold now. No. Um, but no, it's a wonderful piece, and people love to, inter again, interact. And so it's that engagement and that direct engagement with the piece that I think makes the work so unique. Um, we have had people get a little too excited with engagement and want to really, like, fling it as if it was tetherball. Um, but, you know, we just kind of monitor that, and it works out. Yeah. Did you uh, get to experience the brothers interacting with the piece at all? Yes, yeah, they've come through, they love to, you know, they've played with all the pieces. And I say play, I mean, I should use a more technical term, but I think really that's what it is. It's play. Um, and they are drawn to the pieces that um, incite a conversation about prayer more than anything. And, and um, one of them was engaged in a formal conversation with Cal. Yes, about yes, yeah, Brother Charles Hilkin, who's actually a member of the faculty in the history department as well, he came and there was a panel discussion about the role of technology and, and spirituality and how they interact. And um, he had, you know, great thoughts and insight around the work and he had come in two days before the talk and spent an hour just spending and dedicating time with each of the pieces um, interviewing the curator talking to me reading the catalog and you know doing his homework so he could meet the great artist himself and be able to dialogue but they've enjoyed the works um, we also had a number of other programs because it was timely when you have spinning scary headless robots around halloween um, where we even had the students coming in and it was haunted galleries and you loaned us uh smoke machines so you know they're so are you gonna have a smoke machine catherine in the gallery you should think about it no just kidding um that's not a problem for the william keith painting speaking where conservation and art meet um, we angled it the other way. No, just <laughs> no, it was blowing in the other gallery. It was fine. It, it, the smoke was just blowing on Cal's art. It was okay, not on William Keith. Um, but no, the diversity of the work has been really exciting and really drawn an interesting crowd. So, yeah. Maybe we should open it up to questions from all of you. Expand the conversation. Comments. <laughs> Mary? Can we hear some of the sounds? That yeah, that would be great. Do you want to turn them on for us? Well, the, 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 that's well, not going to reach. Um, it's not going to reach. Use the other mic. I need both. Oh, you do? Okay. Well, um, let's get a. Can I have a volunteer, please? And if you experiment with pressing the buttons, um, the, it, you can get different sounds. Okay.
What is the? So these really are designed as prayer wheels. Yes. Yeah. So I was thinking about prayer wheels and portable. Well, uh, one of my heroes, Marcel Duchamp, built a portable museum, and so I was sort of really riffing on that. Boîte en valise. Is that right? Valise. Boîte en valise. Boîte en valise. My French is terrible. Valise just means suitcase. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, he was uh, um, an artist I've read pretty much everything on, and at a, he had never had a museum show, though he really was the most important artist of the 20th century. And so uh, at one point, he just built his own portable museum show and put it in a suitcase. So it sort of summed up his career. And it was sort of a joke, but now those are worth like a million dollars each. And, and and the guy was very much a prankster and um, uh, super into technology and sort of riffing on his portable museum. So these have um, measuring tools. Each has a soundtrack, um, etched uh, marble. Um, How does the marble play a role in the sound? And so it doesn't. <laughs> it's just a hunk of marble. But what's happening is that spinning um, Buddha is scraping that sheet of aluminum. But you all can operate them afterwards if you like. And how do you get the sound of the voice? And so I bought these uh, recording modules and then picked out 10 um, what I thought were sort of mystical or powerful um, kinds of music that I like to listen to and downloaded um, about a minute on each of these. And so this is um, the Chanting Monkey song. I don't know if you know that, Alistair. It was made famous in the film Baraka. From Bali. From Bali, yes. And uh, uh, Mary and I once, we were in Paris on my birthday, December 23rd, and we went to, uh, I was like, whoa, cool, Gregorian chants in Notre Dame, let's go. And so we went in the morning, and I recorded. And so that one has the Gregorian chants I recorded at, at a, I mean, an off-the-hook temple. I mean, what a show. You go to, like, I mean, really, you think about it, and you go, you go to Notre Dame for the Gregorian chant day, and it's a full show. They got smoke. They got lights. The guys are in outfits. There's a full Gregorian choir, and it's free. I was like, and we were standing. I was like, "What a show! Look at this place! Like, this is like so wow! I'm a redneck kid from Iowa. Here I am in Notre Dame. Wow!" And, and you know, uh, you know, I often think, looking back at where I came from, I can't believe I'm in City Lights Bookstore, where I came to in 1979 as a runaway teenager in Hitchhike, San Francisco, and I was like, "Whoa, the Beatniks!" These guys, they they did on the road. They traveled and went were seekers, and uh, I've been in and out of this bookstore ever since. I, you know, walked up out front before I walked in. I was like, I can't believe it. I can't believe this. I, I I'm here. You know, maybe the takeaway is you all can do it too. Because if this kid from Iowa can do it, you guys can do it. And uh, you know, it was a ton of sacrifice and torturing everyone on that way, but. You do the best with what you got. Strawberry Creek. I'm going to go back to Strawberry Creek. That is such an important creek globally. It's, it, and that William Keith had a painting of it. 
it, it, it was almost serendipity to me. I um, ran a lot with this group called the Cacophony Society mm -hmm. in, in the 90s, and we did a tunnel exploration in Strawberry Creek when it was, and, and we would break into these sewer lines and have like banquets or parties down there. And it wasn't, a, it's not a sewer, it's actually a creek in a, in a giant tube you can stand up in. And we walked around with flares and goofed around and ran around in them and probably smoked a bunch of pot. And sometimes we'd bring like a roast turkey or, and, and have a banquet. And it's all a little blurry, but I know we went in Strawberry Creek. And anyway, uh, a historical environmental uh, action that I got to reference and celebrate and build a machine to pray to that creek. Well, and it's almost like a full circle, right? Because the painting is before it was covered. Way before it. Right. The, the painting, it looks like it's in a deep mm -hmm. forest. You wouldn't imagine that was Berkeley. And, and it is a, a rare one because most of William Keats' work is of the High Sierra. Um, and, you know, everything from Shasta all the way down through uh, Yosemite. So to have, the, there are few and far between that are early depictions of the Bay Area. And thousands of his paintings were lost in the 06 earthquake. So um, I think somewhere around almost 5,000 were lost in that. He was a <laughs> prolific artist and very successful during his lifetime. He would equate to being a millionaire today um, with the sales of his paintings. So um, we're lucky that we even could dig up that Strawberry Creek painting out of the brothers' Seven. quarters and pry it out of their hands. But now they can come pray with it in the museum. So Will they come to the gallery? Mm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Other questions, comments? I'm curious about when the creeks got covered up, because I didn't know that happened in this area, too. I think there's seven rivers in San Francisco, right? Something like that, all of which yeah. have been covered. A lot of that was in the 40s and 50s, right during and after World War II, and then there's this economic boom. And then the development kicked in in the, in the urban areas in America. But often, like in New York City, they started covering up the creeks immediately and burying them. There have been campaigns to open Cesar Chavez up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's one of the creeks here, like Mission yeah. Creek. Yeah. Right yeah, Mission Street always a creek. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and during Loma Prieta, Babylon Burning, the screw fitting place. Down there on uh, South of Market, South yeah, Market. Yeah. and everything went down a whole the, the, that just, just sunk into the mud. Sunk yeah, into yeah. A creek that they up. No, Bayshore Boulevard was the Bayshore, right up lapping at the edge of Bernal Heights. There's one in Cal Hollow too. Oh yeah. yeah. There was one sand on Shotwell Street after the last That's the one. I just wanted to mention that the St. Mary's Gallery website, you if you can't get to the gallery in those last moments, a lot of the work is there and also a little five minute piece of Cal with the um, with the creek. 
sculpture and the painting and you can send it to all your friends. Thank you for mentioning that. That's true. It's great to have that on the site. That's right. Thank you. Thanks for the plug. Yeah. yeah it's a great exhibit. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the idea that we came back here. The the, the, the idea of the, the pine cone and the creek and, and that we're sitting here talking about nature because nature is really like the original church. Yeah. And um, I think that probably everybody in this room has had an altered state experience in nature. It's it's sort of that's that's how we connect with with everything. And uh, I like the idea, altered states, whether... It's through technology like LSD, or whether it's through technology like architecture and design, or whether it's through nature or meditation. It's all very similar. And like Cal, I did lots of hallucinogenic drugs. And I'm not so proud to admit that part of what drew me to meditation was like, oh, altered states, yeah. You know, I could get in a meditative state and feel something very similar to LSD. Uh, that's not actually the point of meditation, I found out. Uh, so, you know, don't try that at home. But, uh, For that purpose. Yeah. But, you know, any motivation helps. You know, sometimes my uh, beloved Mary and I, like any couple, get in a fight. And I'm like, oh, gasp. And, I'm, and we have this thing now, we're like, time to meditate. And we have to stop if someone asks. We have to consider it and then stop and we'll do a 10-minute meditation session. And often after 10 minutes, we'll look at each other and go, 10 more? <laughs> and then we just sit with each other and, and every single time, every single time, there's nothing to argue about afterwards. Thanks, Allie. <laughs> there was a question here. What's the significance of the measuring instruments to you? Well, I'm a science geek, and these are all tools I use in my workshop to build my art. And uh, um, can you measure spirituality? Of course not, I don't think. But uh, um, sort of want to do um, sort of do this. Uh, I guess it's a kind of meta thing to add some of the tools of my trade to the um, to this project. You know, I wanted to say it, it's an interesting dissonance because we live in, in the world of big data. You know, it's all about quantifying things and, and, and measuring. And uh, that's pretty much, you can't do that with spirituality or a spiritual practice. And so you have the spiritual and you have the measuring. And they're, you could say they're in opposition to one another, but maybe not. Who knows what they're doing when you close that? Through all these amazing pieces that you've just built, how is that inspiring you to work on your next? Like, what's next? Mm. So, have you, have you found anything that's like, oh my god, this is this is really cool? While I was building this, like, it gave me this idea for the next piece. So, good question. Um, well, I started building artificial organs after the exhibit, sort of during and after it, and then they're triggered by um, biometric sensors and they're essentially medical equipment uh, I've been hacking, and uh, that comes from me turning into the end-of-life caregiver in my bizarrely large family, 
um, and and I guess it's sort of a, a commentary or critique on the uh, um, for-profit medical industry and how sort of ghoulish that was to watch with uh, you know, some of the closest people in my life. Um, and I have also have another body of work that's riffing on science and historic scientific experiments. And that's uh, really an observation on the collapse of our education system and this anti-science movement and sort of willful ignorance, I think, which leads to persecution of people, not even minorities, because women are the majority of America, and there's still a persecution of them. And at that time, I think Alabama passed this horribly restrictive uh, um, reproductive rights law. And I just thought, God, this is all connected, this terrible education and this anti-vax movement and flat earth movement. It just is going on and on. And, um, and so I was, I've been looking at the fundamentals of uh, these, how the universe functions, for instance, gravity or uh, light, and then building pieces, riffing and referencing that. I did a residency at the Galileo Museum in Italy this fall. Um, and in Florence, Italy, super cool, fun, amazing, and uh, and sort of, uh, I guess, recreating some of these experiments using contemporary technology and a contemporary lens, and then making them interactive and fun, and uh, directly though referencing facts. These aren't fiction. This is the truth, and it's real. And as uh, when the book burnings come, and they will come, and they've come before, and they and it'll happen again. Um, maybe they can't burn the sculptures. Yeah, because one of the things you neglected to say, but I think you're making reference to in the releases here as well, is that these historic scientific documents you've um, transcribed onto permanent materials like marble. Yes. So I, uh, um, another residency I had has this really kick-ass laser cutter. And I was like, what do you do with laser cutters? I don't know. Or people cut plastic. Oop-dee-doo. It just didn't seem that important. But then I was like, could we cut, like, rock? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Uh, can we try? And so I um, brought in, I um, went to, um, I had a residency at the Recology at the city dump and I scored some broken uh, tabletops, marble tabletops. And then I brought it in to the other residency that had this amazing, bizarre, giant laser cutter, and we stuck the marble under it, and it etched it. So in here, uh, each uh, valise has a piece of etched marble, and then from there I've been etching um, historic scientific theorems and documents into marble. I threw one into the San Francisco Bay so they can find it in a thousand years. Uh, a friend of mine is a caver, and they're going to drop one in a cave, and then and the other ones are to exhibit as art pieces. And and I haven't signed any of them because you know, like, uh, so I took um, the notes from Mary Curie's notebook and then etched it onto marble, so they can burn her notebooks, but we got it on marble now, and 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 these are facts that I'm etching onto them. It's not a myth, it's not a story, these are the truth, and this is how the universe functions and works. And, uh, 
Anyway, it's, so I think of them, I guess, as political pieces, but honoring um, science. I actually wanted to be a scientist, but I couldn't even get through algebra, let alone organic chemistry. I have this, I have some kind of weird learning disorder, and so there's no way I was going to get through those gates that they have to stop scientists. And then I realized much later how boring a, a lab is, I'd have never lasted. So maybe it's good they had those blocks that I couldn't get through in the education system. Thank you. Hi, Kyle. I really appreciate that your, your work is uh, trying to address the issue of technology and spirituality. Seems to be a very kind of tough area to address. I commend you for that. And I'm trying to get a sense of, uh, especially used uh, with these uh, boxes over here, the robots and so on. How do I experience it from the perspective of a um, Eastern spirituality? Um, I happen to be a, a, a Buddhist, and um, these kind of remind me. Forgive me first, uh, I haven't reformulated my, my questions yet, so let me just, just think out loud. Uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, one of the anecdotes of um, like Chan Buddhism, when the, uh, a person went to the, the sixth patriarch of Chan Buddhism, uh, asking him, how many hours should I sit and meditate each day? And he said, for God's sake, it's up to you. If you don't like sitting, don't sit and meditate. <laughs> So, so now I immediately think of, okay, I really don't like sitting and, uh, and meditating, and I like to just push buttons and meditate, and yours will be a great model for that. <laughs> so that's one aspect of it, which I, which I really like, there's this humor to it. And the other side of it is, which I haven't resolved in my mind, is that uh, after the six picture answered that person in that way, he also pointed out that you have to find a way that works for you, right? Whatever that thing that person eventually finds for, for him or her must have some effect on his internal workings through that method, right? So that's where I'm, I'm kind of trying to understand what's your conception of like these kind of devices where the, 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 the user or the, the audience can push a button and it does something almost for you. Uh, where do you intend it to be a tool for meditation or a kind of mirror to, for you to see within yourself? Mm. Um, that's what I'm, I was thinking. I don't even it's carrying into the question. I love it all. I mean, I mean, uh, um, uh, you know, so many religions have tools to help you um, uh, meditate or pray, and um, there's prayer beads and rosaries and all these different sort of repetitive almost mantra-type um, uh, gestures, actions, and prayers that uh, help you sort of, I think, go into a state and lose yourself and surrender. And uh, I had this uh, with my sound machines I've been working with phase shifting. And it's something Stephen Reich or uh, a lot of the New York um, new music people worked with, even... Um, some punk bands like Sonic Youth do it, where, uh, um, anyways, hoping these would do it, and they do do it. When multiple um, Buddhas are spinning, you get a phase-shifting effect, which is sort of uh, psychedelic and meditative, and if you really listen to the sound, it goes through a pattern and then starts to repeat. 
which is very much like chanting or praying, I thought. And I was, I was like, it's got to work with the spinning. It'll, and I, but I, you don't know. And you know, it's just like almost everything I build, you really never know if it's going to actually work or do what you hope you think you want it to. And, and so there, um, I mean, like any art making, right? You make a painting, you're like, I'm thinking it's going to do this or look like that. Or you write a poem and you're like, well, I'm trying to capture this essence or energy. But until you finish it, you never know. And um, But it, they do phase shift. It's, it's such a, oh, I, I mean, when I had, was in my studio and I got like three done, I was like, all right, can I turn all three on and I'm holding the buttons? And I was just quiet and listening and it, and it went through the phase. I was like, I did it there's one and then like second third and then by the 15th you're like oh like i'm sort of like drooling almost i don't know if that i never answer questions i just reply to stuff <laughs> what do you think peter you know i think we should give everyone a chance to, to yeah, yeah. And, uh, thank you all again thank you everybody Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.